In the five years since the founding of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, the agency has quickly gained influence, in many ways serving as the tip of the spear for the U.S. government's efforts to coordinate a national cybersecurity strategy. Earlier this year, CISA released a major revision of its Zero Trust Maturity Model, which we talked about in a previous podcast. And just a couple weeks ago, five years after its 2018 founding, CISA released its latest strategic plan, and we thought we'd take a closer look. Hi, I'm Ken Cadet, and this is the NTrust Cybersecurity Institute podcast. Today, we'll dive into CISA's strategic plan and what we can learn from this for enterprises and governments in the U.S. and around the world. So to talk about this, we have brought in two special guests with deep insight into the world of cybersecurity strategy and oversight. First, I want to welcome Paul Kalatiud. Paul is the founder and chief strategy officer at Onda. Paul is also formerly chief security officer at Palo Alto Networks and the chief technology officer at Firemon. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Entrust, for uh, the invite. And joining Paul, a regular on these podcasts, is our own Chief Information Security Officer, Mark Rucci. Welcome back, Mark. Thank you, Ken. All right. So let's talk about CISA and the new strategic plan. Um, first, you know, maybe we should just start at the beginning. Um, Paul, what are your thoughts on CISA as an organization? As I said, founded um, just five years ago. Um, do they have the authority and credibility to make a significant impact on the state of cybersecurity? And how are they doing so far? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think it's always good to kind of understand, you know, when when these new publications start coming out, you know, what's 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 their mission and goal, right? And when you look at that, the origin story, I think, is really one where uh, out of necessity and, and I think as a result of them, you know, having having the need in the industry, they, they are quite influential in terms of their their goals and missions. They're not influential in terms of thou shall, but uh, the way I'd like to look at their goal and mission, you know, kind of at the highest level, it's to it's it's to kind of look at it more from a uh, from a from a from a enemy landscape point of view, right? And so, if the enemy is doing one thing behavioralistically, we should do something similarly. And so, in the case of uh, cyber warfare or just cybersecurity, you know, threats, the adversaries are openly communicating with each other that they're they're very good about sharing information, either selling that information or at least collaborating. So to me, generally speaking, what I like to say often to CISOs to kind of encourage information sharing and collaboration is we have to do the same. If we think that they don't know our network better than we do, that's a, that's a challenge to, as a problem. And I think if I were to look at that kind of just that, dynam- that dichotomy between, you know, the, the attacker versus the defender, I think CISO's organization, like their highest level of goal where they create a lot of influence is they operate as a bridge and a conduit and a channel for a lot of these things to happen because it's very difficult and very taxing for me to then create personal relationships with Mark and with everyone that I know, right? And maintaining that is very exhausting. I think CISA does a really, really good job of spending their entire time building those 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 institutional frameworks so that I can benefit from the goal, which is I need to be sharing in as collaborative as the adversary so that I can do my job just as effective. Absolutely. Mark, how how does CISA influence the way you do cybersecurity and entrust? Paul caught some of those. You know, a lot of this is information sharing. Um, now, I will say, if you have a if a company has a government service, CISA does have some directive authority. Um, there are things like binding operational directives, which are very declared. But in general, most for-profit companies or even nonprofits, you know, they don't 
um, have government, you know, federal services that they have. So a lot of it, it's data that they're providing, it's awareness, it's ability to share across functionally. As Paul said, sometimes that's for friend, friendly, sometimes that's for competitors. You actually have to be able to share this data with competitors too. And if you're not, you know, you're, you're, you're hurting the in- industry as a whole. Yeah, I think that takes us into the strategic plan a little bit. I know the first goal, they put this on three three pillars. And the first one is really addressing immediate threats. And it's really all about visibility, gaining better visibility into threats in order to go after them, disrupt them, mitigate the exploits, mitigate the fallout from that. You know, this means for their point of view, it means building capacity, building the security posture for federal agencies and working with the private sector um, to help detect and mitigate threats and vulnerabilities uh, before they become incidents. Um, but one co- one commenter noted uh, about the strategy, this is really the gloves coming off, that they're really putting together uh, a bit more of a mission in terms of trying to, uh, trying to bring together public and private to get ahead of the bad guys a little bit. Um, they they call it being a force multiplier. What do you think, Mark, about that? What what consists of do to be a force multiplier on cyber defense? Uh, working with, uh, working with the private sector as well as the public sector. Well, I think one they've come a long way since you know the, the cybers are you know when when the, for people who know the cybers are you know and FBI InfraGuard. This idea has been around for a long time. But those were all fairly limited, you know, in their scope. Um, CISA, for particularly for U.S. companies, their mandate, their scope, their reach back, and their situational awareness is really unparalleled. We can't, you know, even uh, even if you bought the best commercial Intel service out there, you can't compete with what they're going to be able to provide. And I think that's really is a critical component. You know, the, the people always saying the new normal. I've heard that too for the last 25 years. Oh, this is a new normal. This is I'm another new, new normal that, <laughs> that's hitting our shores. And I think there's lots of lots of opportunities here. Um, and, you know, the, the, to me, the challenge has always been if you're part of critical infrastructure or you're big enough, um, that you've been reaching out to these organizations for several years, if you're the SMBs that are out there, there tends to be nobody that, you know, to those people, it seems that there's nobody helping them at all. Um, this is a bit of a ready built model for, I, I guess, not only for the large companies, but SMBs who I think have been historically left out of this conversation. Yeah. It seems, it seems like schools, nonprofits, hospitals, you know, places like that are really being hit hard right now. Absolutely. Is there a culture change that needs to happen in order to make this mission really work of um, companies, organizations sharing sharing data, benefiting from data in this way? Paul, what do you think? Yeah, Ken, I think I think that was a really well well put question in terms of like how how they maybe CISA what challenges like CISA have, right? In terms of mission. And I think a big part of it is is a mindset, is a cultural change uh, that is needed. So we as security practitioners have this tendency to to withhold information 
right? I need to know um, that that mindset is appropriately, you know, galvanized in my career. But um, I'll go back to again, again, the, the mission statement of, of how the network hackers uh, work and how we need to change. And I think when I think about this first pillar of their CIS's goal, it is a couple of things. Like Mark said, it is um, accessing critical information that is is below the cybersecurity poverty line. The poverty line is everyone that's not a Fortune 500 with with a CISO, you know, on staff. That is a uh, 90% of every organization. So what did they do? How do they how do they get access to these networks? Like I said, in the past, it might have been peer to peer and relational, or by 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 inheriting yourself in a critical infrastructure designation, getting you access. So when I think about what CIS is doing. I think of themselves as establishing a democratization of information in terms of intelligence. However, that is the that is the opportunity that's been laid out. You still have to have a mindset in a mental state that says, look, I'm going to not only embrace this, but I'm also going to contribute to it. Because these things don't work effectively if it's a one-way street. If it's just an organization feeling like their job is to consume this information without actually contributing back. Well, then the information uh, population of data doesn't actually get any more enriched. It's just a subset of organizations that have decided to share. So, you know, I think that's a, a longer conversation around how does that success over time look to the CISO organization in terms of this mission and this pillar. But I think at least establishing outreach, at least establishing some level of, of advocacy towards change will start to affect organizations. And I can tell you one way as CISO might, who is on in support of something like this might be able to have their uh, ability to contribute to change is maybe inside a contractual relationship, there's questions around how are you contributing your information uh, that you have to a greater good? Uh, and it may not be you know, a go, no go in terms of the chip. These are how things I've done in the past where you start to move the needle, right? Where you start to like kind of try to get people uh, working you know, in, in, a good, in a good way. I call it, I call it digital cyber democratization. How is it that you know, a government organization like CISA can kind of help you um, in your role as a CISO? Um, uh, you know, take the take that take that action to um, take that action to contribute to the common good uh, and help improve the visibility of um, the visibility around cyber threats around the uh, around the world. Well, I it, it, it's. It allows you to start to play in that realm, meaning we're we're in a global realm. Twenty years ago, for sure, thirty years ago, if you had a shop, unless you were a global company, you really you didn't extend much beyond where you were. Today, that global cyber fight that Paul is talking about is going on in front of us, at us, and. Sometimes these are full nation states. Sometimes these are highly complex cyber criminal gangs. Even if you are a Fortune 500 company, it's unlikely you will have all the weaponry at the ready to be able to defend yourself. CISA is the prime gap to understand what's happening out there at the global level, to take that into usable data, usable steps to defend your network, to start to understand what the real threats are in any particular given day, because they're changing, you know, it, it, it changes hour over hour sometimes, you know, what's the major threat coming your way? 
So let's let's segue. It's a good segue over to the second pillar, which is about hardening the terrain. And that one is really all about accountability, according to the strategy. It's it's about it's about a strategy to help really ensure and track adoption of plans and measures, uh, resilience, um, resilience of critical infrastructure, and you know, advocating for the right resources to get to some of those softer targets that we talked about, the the target rich resource poor organizations as they call them. Um, how achievable is this? Um, Mark, what do you think? It, well, first of all, I would differentiate in two levels. One, it's, it's, it is achievable, but there has to be an investment on both sides. It is not something you can be, it's not a service that you're going to get a switch. They're going to send you a code and you turn it on and suddenly it works. If it were that easy, we would, we would have done it. We would have been here. You're going to have to actively be part of it. I think the other thing uh, that's what that works and doesn't work, if you think about this realm and you compare it to other realms, the kinetic realm, um, if a if a jet comes across our border and bombs your building and flies back, you're not in a discussion about how big I, st- I should have built, how thick I should have built those walls, why my radar didn't pick it up. You're not worried about attribution or hot pursuit. The government kind of does all that for you. And the cyber realm, they historically have done little of that. You still, if if you still have to be responsible, in essence, for having built that wall, you know, to a certain thickness. This is now going to be providing you with some of what you would consider, you know, with NORAD today. If there is a rogue jet flying towards the U.S. coast, NORAD's going to pick it up. Now they might not call, you know, to the companies that happen to be in the in the way, but they're just by companies aren't even going to have to worry about it. They just know that NORAD will have conducted an intercept, you know, 20 miles, 50 miles off the U.S. coast, shot it down or at least escorted it safely, you know, away, you know, from the U.S. economic exclusionary zone. Um, they, that ha- is not happening in the cyber realm unless you're fully aware and a full participant in that that's part of the challenges i see it and opportunity and of course the of course the sec is putting up requirements for public companies now too to start to be more accountable on cyber risk strategy on uh on reporting what kind of governments governance they're putting in place is that kind of requirement helping oh absolutely um and, and as you say, the SEC, so it's obviously for for-profit companies. If you're a private company and not-for-profit, sometimes those aren't applicable. But most of that carries over. But what's for the first time ever in there, you know, there's kind of four areas that the SEC highlights. You know, one is reporting incidents, which already has been covered. You know, there's lots of liability if there's an incident. But I think the areas of, of interest there are cybersecurity risk management, role of management in cybersecurity implementation, as well as board expertise. Um, what this means is they have historically, except for a few industries, not assumed responsibility at that level. I think that in the biggest component that can come out of that really is um, the cyber risk management in that there's an opportunity to create a single accepted framework so today even within companies 
let's say Paul is in the medical industry. He's driven by HIPAA. I'm in the financial services. I'm driven by Grambley's Bliley. For risk management, we're focused on what those conceptual frameworks mandate. This is going to take it up a level. Um, so they could take something like NIST CSF, you know, that's NIST uh, cybersecurity framework. Um, that would give a consistent view to how they translate, you know, really complex cybersecurity risk concepts into terminology and concepts and reports that'll be understood cross-functionally. Today, a lot of those are done by, sometimes they're done by auditors, sometimes they're done by super technical cybersecurity people. Sometimes they're completely technical risks. Sometimes they're business risks. And I think there's an opportunity that we're going to see a consistent reporting and, and therefore alignment of capabilities across the industry. Yeah, I'll just add to Ken, I think from my perspective, this, this pillar is really critical to success because, and I'll just kind of high level put a theme around this, without, with, without information is only as good as the ad, of the action taken on it, ultimately actionable intelligence. So if you look at kind of building up to this overall strategy, they, they're talking about outreach, they're talking about you know making sure you have the right level of talent. Uh, sharing information, and then this gets into the accountability of what do you do when you get that information. So without type of without governance, you really have noise in the system. Got a lot of people calling, uh, you know, wolf or 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 pulling the fire alarm, if you will. So you're deploying all the sensors, you're deploying all these systems, but at the end of the day, if there's no plan to act on it, there still is a, a moral hazard or or a risk to the organization. So for me, this whole idea around what uh, SEC is doing and what CISA uh, is doing in terms of mission is in this in this category is about, okay, let's make sure that as we think about the information that we're going to share with said organization, what's the level of accountability and maturity so that they can act on it appropriately. Without it, it's you're, you're, you're kind of missing the engine, you know, in the vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, so let's jump over to the third pillar which they call cybersecurity at scale. Um, Nancy, I was just thinking about it. I want to read. I want to read a little bit of what they wrote here. It says, "As a society, we can no longer accept a model where every technology product is vulnerable from the moment it is released, and where the overwhelming burden for security lies with individual organizations and users." That really kind of a clarion call to technology. You know, anybody making technology, um, uh, to to get security by design, right? To get security designed in from the very beginning. How well do you think this call is being taken up? Are, are there some major barriers? Does the does the strategy and does the maybe the US in general, does this all have enough teeth um, to stop uh, you know to stop this kind of uh the you know, technology coming out that's really vulnerable and insecure? Yeah, I do think this is probably the area of most influ influence for CISA, CISA, quite frankly, because this is where they get to really reach in and influence the, the private sector through government contracts, right? If you look at healthcare, a lot of reform starts, uh, for good or bad, uh, in uh, the government sector, which we all call Medicare, right? In Medicaid. And these are the programs where the way we do business in terms of managing patient safety, health, and just overall insurability greatly impacts the rest of the of the market because organizations don't want to have two ways of dealing with their, their market. They have, you know, even 10% of their population is, is a federal employee or, or a covered entity. They're going to probably just, you know, and we see this with other things, right? California Privacy Act, GDPR. How many people in the United States are focused on GDPR? 
just because they don't know where their citizens may or may not interact. So so I see CISA really having a big influence here because what they can do with a heavy hand is they can create a lot of enforcement in terms of how technology gets procured within the U.S. government. And as a result of that, a lot of manufacturers are going to follow, right, the idea of what it means. And then they're going to look at it and go, hey, we're, if we can, if it works for the U.S. government, it should work for you, right? So it actually becomes something they'll, they'll kind of embrace and mark. But, you know, this is a really important aspect because, you know, if you look at other industries, you know, aviation, you know, there's a, there's a lot of safety we expect out of the pilot. But at the end of the day, you know, Boeing or whatever manufacturer, Lockheed Martin or who, you know, whoever built that airplane, there are inherent safety protocols and quality assurance protocols that are built in. And it's fundamentally a requirement, you know, for that industry. So in cyber, I think you're going to see similar things first and foremost. You're going to see sector reforms because the technology is very specific. So like that the FDA, for example, has you know come out with uh, security by design requirements in order to get FDA approval. So if you look at like uh, insulin pumps or, or medical devices in the past, security was a requirement of the, C- uh, the C- CISO to secure this thing through IoT or, or whatever types of means because it was being compromised. That puts a lot of burden on the organization because now they have to be experts on manufacturing and experts on cyber and operationally uh, empathetic towards what they're implementing. Because again, the best security is going to be shut everything off and disable it and turn it off, right? Then you're good. Uh, that obviously doesn't meet business requirements and objectives around patient safety and outcomes for healthcare and medicine. So then the conversation becomes, where what, what's the right approach? Is it educating CISOs on how to make the right purchases and reverse engineer medical devices? No. Is it about creating a set of standards that Really, no one really knows how to measure and enforce. No, it's going into the regulatory environments and saying, hey, if you want to do business, if you want to be a an organization that wants to build a medical device, just like if you want to build an airplane, right? You know, you have to be so tall in order to get on that that ride. And I think this is this is probably where they're, they're going to have the most immediate impact. It's just simply saying things like, if you want to do business with the U.S. government, here's, here's the ride height. And that is going to create a... Uh, essentially a tide uh, that raises all ships. Uh, so then, yeah, I mean, to, to me, that's kind of how Yeah, it makes sense. Um, the section also is a welcome call to take a look at some future challenges like AI and quantum computing. Where do you feel like we are on those kinds of challenges? Well, I it's kind of funny, you know, but before chat GPT, I think people were probably more concerned about quantum computing and they still should be concerned about quantum computing. Um because quantum computing and generative AI offer as much advantage as disadvantages, meaning from a security perspective. Um, when I think about what they could do, you know, just generative AI phishing campaigns, which, you know, we've all come a long way since the Nigerian prince thing. But all of a sudden right now, if you don't, you don't even have to be a semi-expert with generative AI, you know, you know, all of has has lots of press that's out there. And if someone really wanted to, they could bar myself or you enough out there. They could pretend to be us. They could probably do a pretty damn good job, and even in a phishing email or, you know, uh, any other type of, 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 of phishing. I mean, that alone is enough of a concern. Now, of course, the flip side of that, generative AI is probably going to be used to figure this stuff out. Um Quantum computing, yeah, you know, there's still things I'm worried about, you know, meaning, you know, quantum resistance, cryptography, um, you know, if people have already harvested the data today that's encrypted, 
you know, via asymmetric cryptography, they'll probably be able to decrypt that in the future. Um, so I, there's clearly, it's a double-edged sword, but you need to be aware of what new vulnerabilities are going to be introduced, you know, insecure code generation, things like that, if you can use it as well as the positive. Paul, from a CISO standpoint, I mean, how are you looking at some of these future technologies? I know one of the things that's, you know, sort of hiding in the appendix of this is, to take a look at you know what a digital what the digital identity ecosystem is mm-hmm. even across um, uh, you know across our our internet our connected landscape um, you know thinking about all these things you know AI quantum you know identity um, what should you be preparing for what should you be thinking about today even when maybe it doesn't feel so solid today yeah. I think CISOs have a really challenging job in general because I always say like we have to be kind of experts on a lot of different parts of the business in order to be really effective in our role as an advisor. And this is a very similar one. So, you know, we're we're, we're faced with understanding what the business, you know, drivers are going to be for things like digital transformation, for things like AI and things like quantum. So we have to be kind of like a CIO uh, or chief data officer or, or, you know, some role like that. We have to be thinking about what's all the, the good that we can either benefit from from it in, in our organization and most importantly, how's the business dependency going to create? And then, of course, we have to then reverse engineer it and then try to figure out how it's going to break the organization um, and, and be misused. And so when I think about that mindset as a challenge, right, and then uh, approaching your question, it's, 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 it's the same thing. I have to be thinking about the idea that organizations are really going to want to lift some of the labor force in almost all parts of the organization. You know, AI, AI is generative AI is very much about um, force multiplying any discipline, any organization. So let's just pick on application development. Application development, you know, might be using source code that that someone wrote in the future did a machine writing. So again, that's the business outcome and positivity. Well, what's, what's the risk? And you kind of mentioned it again around supply chain. And so is there supply chain risks? Is there patent litigation risks? Uh, and we're seeing this with the U.S. patent. They've come out recently with some memos or some notifications that have simply said, hey, we're not sure if, if, if you can't prove how that code was written. We're not sure if you will be able to be uh, granted a patent because if it's generative AI usage, it's kind of like, I don't know if I can give you a letter grade as a student if you didn't write the paper. Right. In terms of plagiarism. And so it, this is a big problem. This is a really big deal, because if you think about an organization who, want, who who goes too forward with adoption of AI, only to find that they are they don't own any IP, uh, you know, you, you 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 literally are getting at the the soft rebellion of capitalism in the United States today. Modern capitalism is about data and maximizing data and creating. But to me, this is this is a big deal, like whether or not it hits us directly in terms of disrupting our positions or whether it hits us, you know, in terms of direct cyber attacks, it ultimately has a fundamental challenge to the way money is made and money is recognized. And as a result, as a CISO, we need to be very, very cognizant about how we're going to manage supply chain, how we're going to confidence. And uh, I, again, that's just one example in one department. We can go into every other you know, department and have the same kind of uh, fearful conversation. Do either of you have a sense of how it's going to help? Like, I know we've talked about it as, uh, you know, benefit challenge on both sides of things. I'll just say threat hunting right up front. Yeah. You know, you think about it today, it, you're already using AI for threat hunting today. 
you're combining it with, you know, you're trying to do security orchestration, automation around it, data lakes and things like that. It's just going to take it to the the next level. And I, for you know, I could probably spend too too much time going in depth, so I'll just <laughs> stop there. Yeah, I I would actually, Mark, I agree 100% with you. I, I think another way to look at the question, Ken, is it's like, what's the first area AI might disrupt our and it's going to be a simple question. Wherever the most laborious tasks exist, right? So, so like Mark said, threat hunting, uh, SOC, tier one SOCs, uh, meaning security operations center, not standard. But, but uh, if I look at these 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 areas where there are heavily researched information that is being processed by human, this is a prime you know area for generative AI to to give us a lift, give us a, a benefit. I envision some of the most disruption being the idea of maybe even eliminating cybersecurity incident management tools, your SIMs, um, because a lot of it is gathering data, normalizing it, and attempting for a human to analyze it. So we eliminate the human from the analysis. We don't necessarily need that problem as much as much about managing the data. We just shove it right directly into an AI engine. And uh, you know we get alerts from our AI bot saying, Mark, I think there's an incident. Wait, and again, if you evolve that even further, maybe you, through a Slack integration, the AI SIM is actually interacting with the employee saying, here's the first three steps you need to take. I mean, again, there's a lot of opportunity here to really disrupt in a positive way how we actually staff our organization. Uh, and once once again, uh, I, think in every, I think in every one of our podcasts, somehow it gets around to AI and chat GPT, <laughs> uh, which I think is going to keep happening for a long time. Um, the, um, so it's, uh, but it gets like sort of more, I think everybody's thinking about it. It gets more interesting each time too, which is kind of fun. So what can we learn from, uh, CISA's work here? What can we learn from the strategy they put together? Do you have a sense of where it might be falling short or where it's elevating the practice of cybersecurity? Mark, let's start with you. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's a fantastic question because this has clearly been an iterative, process, you know, of the U of governments in general, you know, where does it fall short? Well, part of me, like I said earlier, you know, in the other realms, in the kinetic realm, the government does everything for you. You really don't have to pay attention. Uh, now, there's many reasons that that doesn't work in cyber, you know, attribution, hot pursuit. You really, even though it uh, could be a foreign national, those concepts sound really easy, but they're really complex. Um, so again, we end up having to be that shield that our individual companies. So, you know, I think cyber education, you know, kind of helping to bridge the gap in talent is a key component that, that CISA is going to undertake and is continuing to expand. You know, the whole idea, I remember my earliest days, I go back to over 30 years in security and I many times was the only person and I was kind of stuck in a closet in the far back. And now all of a sudden, we're security people are on boards. So I, I think Mark actually hits it right. But I'm going to kind of take a different point of view. I think it's also going to be where the biggest challenge is, which is the opportunity in terms of education. You know, uh, CISA has this you know initiative they call K through Gray, which is the act of you know empowering the next generation of of cyber defenders, and giving us more talent to go after. And I, I think that's obviously a really I mean. Can't avoid that. If we don't have the talent, we don't we don't have success. 
But that doesn't deal with the short-term problems that we have. And I think so. My my challenge and the shortcomings, if you will, with CSIS, I think they're thinking very long long term in terms of their goals. I, I don't think they're giving any shortcuts um, to you know it, we'll call it the cliff notes um, that might help people today because I don't have the bandwidth to interact with CISA. I may not have the the talent to do much with that information, even if you hold me accountable. Right now, all you've done is made it harder for me to keep my job. So um, I think what I would say is needed either in the organization or in response to this program operationally is organizations really need to be thinking about managed service providers and partners, right? I don't think CISA does a really good job of kind of calling out the idea that you're not alone in this and that uh, a big trend I see in a lot of modern cybersecurity strategies is really decide, deciding where you're going to be an expert and where you're not, right? If you look at Entrust, right, I, I've used you guys for certificate management in the past. I could either be a, you know, I could be a PKI expert or I could not be. I guarantee I can't sustain that. And so organizations like Entrust and CrowdStrike and a lot of others that I've used, they're adding a lot of value because they're starting to close the talent gap by bringing that closer to their expertise, right? We don't fly planes, pilots do, right? And that's a good nuance here, which is the difference between me needing to be, you know, participant on the plane and me needing to be trained on how to be a pilot in case things go wrong. And I think that's where a lot of cybersecurity needs to go short term is really right sizing organizations and really thinking about what are my strategic partners and how can they, you know, be that conduit into the CISA program because they can do it at scale, right? Back to kind of one of those core missions is how do you do this at scale? Absolutely. So thank you. I appreciate that. Um, let's leave it there then. Um Mark and Paul, thank you so much for sharing your experience and your insights here. I think this has really been a great conversation. I want to thank everyone for listening to this podcast. The podcast comes from the Entrust Cybersecurity Institute. You can check out a wealth of insights at www.entrust.com slash cybersecurity institute. Our podcast is produced by Stephen Damone. If you like what you hear, I encourage you to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we would love to hear from you. Please email your questions, opinions, and ideas to cybersecurityinstitute at entrust.com. And till next time. <laughs>